Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Another exciting installment of d- something deeper with Lindley Ali. I don't know. I was gonna call these like theology. That's interesting, but I, I don't know what to call these segments. These these types of episodes, but I do enjoy them. You know, a story that I remember from my childhood was when I I messed up something in my house and I went to my dad and was just riddled with guilt and I said, "Nobody hates me more than I hate myself." And my dad got down on one knee and looked at me and said, "That's not true." and I hate you more than you hate yourself. No, I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. But something like that kind of happens on a daily basis, I think, with a lot of Christians where we just think God does not like us. We think he's merciful, and we just barely get in by the skin of our teeth because God's so merciful. But today we're going to kind of flip the script on that idea and talk about God's plan for man and the Trinity. We're going to wrap the Trinity up in a concise 30-second bit. That's not true. But you ever kind of have that... that image of God, and maybe if you grew up in the church, there's a lot of church guilt. That's a common thing. And you just almost feel like, I'm coming to God, oh no, and he hates me. It's just, it, nothing could be farther from the truth. And that's why I really enjoy this episode. And I'm going to cut this intro off right here, because I'm so excited for you to get into this episode with us and see how much God really does love us and cherish us, and that you were not a mistake, and that you have a big part to play in this crazy thing called life. We're back here on the podcast. Got, can I call you friend of the show? Is that the right term? Sure, it makes sense to me. I don't even think I introduced <laughs> you on the last episode, but did in the intro. We got Lindley Ali, and uh, he's a Canadian, our friend from the north. Yes. And uh, you're a dual citizen now? Not yet, not, not yet. yet. Now, slowly but surely. Um, I'm still considering. Um, ac- ac- <laughs> accepting the gift of American citizenship. Yeah. So, yeah, we're in the process. Am I going to have some uh, immigration folks show up at my door? Like, <laughs> we've heard you've done a podcast with them. <laughs> yeah. Um, ICE will be, uh, yeah, be looking for me. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're having a nice night here in the garage. Uh, I like to call it the lab. Anywhere I record, I like to call it the lab because it sounds cooler than uh, Lindley's sitting in front of a rake right now. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to take a photo of you. Say hi to the fans. And uh, we're drinking some scotch here tonight, or what is it, uh, Glenn Livett from our good friend Dan Trifoletti. Uh, Trifoletti. Uh, uh. I think Dan buys uh, the case of these, and he gives them out as gifts to people, <laughs> and it looks like, oh, you thought of me. He's got, I think, a whole case of them. Um, how's life for you? The pandemic's been a, a long, ongoing thing. I think we did the first episode together. I actually remember it was Martin Luther King J., uh, Jr. weekend of 2020, we were so young and dumb back then. Didn't yep. see what was coming. Did not see it coming. Absolutely. How's it been for you guys? Um, it's not bad. Uh, my wife and I uh, both uh, continue to have employment, which is really, you know, really uh, we're thankful and grateful for. And it's just kind of we're at home all the time. Yeah. Uh, work starts. We're at home and work ends sometimes and it, we're at home and you know, you're still at home. So yeah, yeah it's a lot of home. Um, it gets tiring after a while. And, um, when she's in meetings and I'm in meetings, um, we have to close doors because, you know, we don't want to talk over each other yeah. and, you know, so forth. We don't want the neighbors to think we're yelling at each other. Um, <laughs> you know, it happens. Uh, but uh, I think that it's been difficult for me personally because I've been unable to fly back to Toronto um, mm. without having to then go in and quarantine for an extended period of time before I, or with my family. And, and Lord knows if I've picked something up along the way, yeah. I don't want to do that disservice to my fellow Canadians or, or my immediate family. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been difficult. It's been about a, a year and a month since I've, about 13 months since I've been back to wow. Toronto. And uh, I, I, 
I usually like to go quite often. I'd go every four to six weeks. So oh, wow. things have changed. Yeah, it's been hard. Uh, you know, well, luckily you get to get out of the house and come to these awesome exotic places like my garage and check out my power <laughs> tools. You know, it's funny. Uh, my wife and I both work from home and uh, we just a room away. And she told me a couple of days ago, like, you know, you sound pretty good on your work calls. I was like, what did you think I did? She's like, I don't know. I didn't think you sound stupid, but like, I'm like, I'm good at what I do. I thought <laughs> she's like, I was like, but thank you for thinking so low of me that I can like put a sentence together. I know words good, Brittany. Um, yeah, it's been an ongoing, I, I think we're maybe hopefully turning the corner. I don't know when this episode is going to air, but as it is right now, I have not had the vaccine uh, you haven't had it yet. No, not yet. I'm not in that category yet. So, um, but I, I'd like to get it as soon as possible. You would think we're in like the health world, the tech world. Oops. And we don't get it. I mean, I guess we're not exactly in the front lines, but it's funny. Lindley and I became friends because you somehow heard I worked at, um, the company that is owned by your, or was started by your company. Correct. Um, when the health is a bit of a spin off, so to speak on our part. Yeah. yeah. And I think you were just like, Oh, somebody else at this church knows maybe the world I'm in. <laughs> what I do. <laughs> yeah. I always tell people, I'm like, I'm like the Chandler Bing of friends. Nobody knows what I do for a living. Can't explain <laughs> it. And then we started hanging out. We had all these better, con- we never even got to like the conversation about health IT transactions and healthcare <laughs> transactions. No, we did not gateway services. And we, we, so we had a friendship here for for a few years, and I love having Lindley on the show because I have all these ideas that I, w- I like to talk about, and not everyone finds them interesting, <laughs> surprisingly, <laughs> much like what I do for a living, but Lindley does. <laughs> and uh, well, what I want to talk about today is something that we've talked about um, privately before, and it's this idea of man's relationship to God. And I think that you know, we often view ourselves, and I think it's in the uh, hymn, like such a worm is I, this this being that is almost despised by God because God is rich in mercy. He decided not to kill every human being in existence, and we barely, like, it, we, and that changes how we approach God. It changes how we view ourselves as well, um, and so we want to talk about, first off, the Trinity, and then also um, God's relationship with us and how he views us in its, in its truth. And so what we're going to start off with is reading a quote here from um, the Nicene Creed. Is that right? The Apostles' Creed, yeah. Apostles' Creed. Um, and this is what the, they wrote. It says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father. And I think we're going to get into that in a second. Yeah, we will. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being in one substance with the Father, and we believe in the Holy Ghost. That's from the Apostles' Creed. So let's kick it off. What is the Apostles' Creed, and what were they saying here? And this is something that a lot of people quote with their churches, often most Sundays, um, but let's dissect this a little bit. Right, so any sort of creed basically is a set of a belief system uh, that would be central tenets to that faith. Um, so, but in this particular case, what we call the Apostles' Creed, what we believe one of the earliest sort of creedal formulated statements um, with great intentionality to be accurate, representing what the Christian Church believes, um, and it is derived from what they believe the apostles taught. Um, and if you recall back to one of the podcasts that we did, I remember reading talking about devoted to the apostles teaching. Yeah. And I think that the apostles teaching here is central into understanding 
what the Apostles' Creed would be. And so the misconception would be the Apostles' Creed was written by the Apostles. This yes. was not written by the Apostles. Correct. This yes. was written by who trying to affirm what they felt the Apostles taught? That's correct, right. So this would be, a, uh, they want probably, I forget where this was, uh, you know, I, I'm not a church historian explicitly. Uh, I tend to fall more towards the theological thinking and the philosophical thinking, but um, uh, maybe one day we'll have my friend Dave on. He, he's, a, he's a true church historian and, and, and a very bright fellow. Um, what we'll have him do is talk about some of these in a very detailed yeah. respect. But yeah, the Apostles' Creed really is a, is a formulation, probably done by one of the church councils, uh, I would assume, uh, if not a bunch of folks who got together who were important Christian thinkers at the time, um, saying what was central to the teaching of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. And so in this regard, then, uh, if you, for example, after the Apostles' Creed, you have the Nicene Creed. And if you're familiar with the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed comes out of the Council of Nicaea in 325. And that really is, again, a creedal reformulation, ensuring that what a central belief system uh, for the church is echoed in that set of series of statements. And and, and the, the Nicene Creed starts off particularly talking about what we just read there, all the way down to, to you know, all the way down to the, the return of Christ uh, and his second coming. So these collective churches throughout the different countries uh, sent representatives. They all got together and said, we need a bedrock belief system that if a church deters from this, it's heretical, um, you know, maybe some other repercussions. But they basically got together like, what? how do we put words to what we believe and what we feel? Absolutely. And, and, and not only were they—the <clears throat> um, Council of Nicaea was called by Constantine, and he wanted to bring all these religious thinkers together, all the important sort of the presbyters, uh, the important patriarchs together to come together and determine what is right and wrong, what is formative for the Christian church. Um, and, and the Nicene Creed then is, is, a, is a formulation that comes out of that. What they also did in creating that formulation was they worked through what they did believe. And there were differing opinions at that point in time, right? Mm-hmm. So Arius, for example, the Presbyter at Alexandria, um, he actually has a, a belief that Jesus is somehow slightly less than God himself. Uh, very important, very powerful, very critical to the Christian belief system, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But nonetheless, though, not the same essence and substance as God. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is problematic. So again, these these councils debate theological ideas and then have a formulation or series of statements what they believe to be the right things going forward and using that as the measuring stick for which one is determined whether one is in the church or outside the church Mm -hmm. to a large degree. Mm -hmm. And so let's dive into what they wrote here. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. Pretty pretty self-explanatory. Absolutely. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God. Let's pause there. Right. Explain that. Right. So this is where the actually debate comes around is what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And uh, as I said, there, there have been many formulations and problems with people trying to understand how is it that God, in his infinite sense, absolutely powerful, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God could actually be in the form of a man. How do they rationalize that and how they reconcile that uh, in their in their heads to think about it in that context? And the only way that some of them came up with was that somehow Jesus either was uh, really not really God, Arius, 
Jesus really is uh, is this a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus is actually some strange chimera, but nonetheless not the same as God. What's and, chimera? Uh, just a combination of two different things. A bit of God, a bit of man. Oh, kind of I a thought thing. that was an X-Men reference. I didn't get, but thank <laughs> no. you. Um, and... Um, and and so and so forth, and there were many of them, and and they had to kind of sift the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they finally come with the with the fact that Jesus, though he is begotten of the Father, that in and of itself does not necessarily mean that he there was a point in time that he did not exist. And I think I think this is important to to really harp on because you ask most normal people, yeah, you know, so you ask me, I probably give you a horrible answer, like who's Jesus? He's God's son. Well, what does God's son mean? Exactly. Uh, I mean, you know, it's like the egg, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think it's important also to remember as as they're doing as good as they can to put human words to describe an infinite supernatural God. Absolutely, absolutely. The essence of the Father. What does that mean? Right, and this is what it means. So when we think of substance, we think of something, uh, the, something tangible, something that is real. Um, not just an idea or concept. So there is a real essence to God. God is someone. We talk about the God as a person. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about God in a sense of some, uh, the uh, as in described as the the force in um, you know in in Star Wars. <laughs> oh, see that I understand. Right. Yeah. Um, God is something richer than that. You remember, uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, man is made in the image of God. So there's something unique and special about God, which is which is obviously um, more than just simply uh, some you know life force um, along mm-hmm. the universe, right? Yeah. He's he's something greater than that, and something about that is reflected in us, and we'll talk about that later on. Yeah, and then so when the next things they say, uh, light of light, the the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being one in substance with the Father. Is there a even a, a good analogy that can kind of explain this? Is it would it be like almost if you had a puddle of water and the water separated itself into another puddle? Is that even close to being any way to wrap your head around this? We can go back to the egg analogy. Yeah, I, I think that is the we we now come up against the bound what I call the boundary condition of our minds to grasp mm. the infinite in that regards. Because this is the difficult thing. There are no analogies. Yeah. There is only one person who's ever lived in that context. That is Jesus Christ. You know, it's not like there were four or five of them along the way. Three kind of worked out. The other two didn't. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there's just this one. And this is, and, and it absolutely makes sense, at least it's in my mind, that the only person that could accomplish this is God himself. Yeah. Only God. Now, we will have my friend Dave on in the near future, um, and Dave wrote his PhD thesis on this subject, how could the concept of the infinite be contained in the finite? Mm. Right? Sounds like one of my peers. Yes. (laughs) I I look forward to that conversation. (laughs) Yeah. I I do. Yeah, he's your intellectual peer. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, it'll have a great conversation. But can he name all the employees of Dunder Mifflin? (laughs) I would highly doubt that. Um, Yeah, no, so this is it. This is a complicated and very difficult concept. And that's why, you know, some Christians, uh, Christians were accused by, for example, the Muslims of being sort of uh, polytheistic, right? Right, right. But Christians adamantly believe that they are 
the same substance and therefore indistinguishable. But yet the fact is at some point in history, in human history, in our time, space and time, there was a person who was fully God and fully man, uh, the God-man in the name of G- the person of Jesus. So I don't want to detract from what we're talking about, but this is just a question. And you know what? My name's on the podcast. All right, fine. You guys, it's named after me. So I'm going to ask this question. So explain for the listeners, not me, because I totally get this. Uh, So you have the Trinity. You have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, the Spirit, we know, hovered upon the waters, and then God makes man. Is Jesus just sitting up in heaven waiting for his cue? What's the Holy Spirit doing? How do they exist in this infinite realm when we have this finite universe now, let's let's go to the, the creation. Well, w- it, again, very difficult. So the early term is the, I think the Hebrew term is Elohim, mm-hmm. which talks about, you know, it is a we more than a, a single individual. So yes, we have an expression of the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters, where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, if you're reading the Genesis account. But that is not in of itself showing separation. We need to be careful that the separation of Father, Son, and Spirit doesn't allow us to fall into the trap of thinking of three separate entities. Hmm. They are three and one simultaneously. Now, you know, I could appeal to a mathematical construct to probably kind of think of things happening in a different realm or something happening in a different dimensionality because God does not exist in, you know, our three-dimensional space-time. He transcends that space and time. And then, you know, we start to lose the ability to be expressive with our words as what that really means. And this is why the struggle for the Apostles' Creed and early Christian thinkers and even modern-day Christian thinkers to grasp the concept of the Trinity because it is not simply as they missed the wrong analogy. Oh, we have the right analogy, so we'll just give you that and you'll understand it. It, We always bump up against a certain, what I call cognitive limitation of understanding of the totality of the Trinity. Um, Yeah, because you can't, can't, as you said, separate them as three distinct Correct. You fall into a trap. Yeah, but it's also, it's not Jesus only, and that's like a term I've heard. It's like, oh, it's all Jesus and God. Like, no, there's a a difference. Yes. And it'll make you lose your mind. Absolutely. So we've tried modalism, for example, and we found that was kind of good, but not good enough as an example, a way to express the three modes of God's existence. Mm -hmm. We tried to talk about the, the three faces of God, right? You know, like, you know, and then that kind of works, but it runs up against boundary conditions as well. Then we've tried to talk about it in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the the single substance, but the presentation or the functional aspect of God functionally working as Father in the Old Testament, right. Jesus on Earth, Spirit now. We and have those- like scary God, nice God, Jesus, yes. weird God, Holy Spirit. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so therefore you end up with this sort of like, you always run up these boundary conditions because um, I don't know if you're filming with Colin McGinn, the, the philosopher, um, he talked about sometimes we lack the cognitive capacities really to understand some mm-hmm. of these things. Um, now, and he was speaking of epistemology. I'm talking theology, but I think the use of, of his, his, his example is, 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 is perfect in this case. Well, I think that's part of the struggle with um, people in the information age. When there's no concrete proof evidence, like explain, they just reject the entire thing. Whereas, like, can you explain love? Like, well, I know it's, well, how do you know it's not just synapses shooting off in your brain? <laughs> that we do have these unexplainable things. And part of the mystery of God is, like, can you sit in that mystery and live without answers until you 
reach eternity. Right, and, and so this is what so this is the um, I'm reading a book by Julian Bagini right now, a philosopher, I think Oxford scholar. Um, I'm not really sure. I don't remember. Uh, great book, right? By the way, and talking about uh, about thought, ideas, skepticism, rationality, and reason. Um, there's this false notion, um, and we'll talk about this in the future at some point. This false notion that I have proof to do something with it. 99% of the people are operating with a, a sort of out of a memory and rote. They are not thinking cognitively about the truth statements or truth claims of anything. Meaning they just accept it and they don't That's correct. Really just kind of move on. Yeah, like, I don't think anyone gets out in the morning and goes, okay, let me now do a check on every aspect of my car <laughs> to right, ensure yeah. that it works the way that it's supposed to work mm. by a to some quote-unquote level of faith, I walk in, I turn the ignition on, and off I go. Right. Um, and and 99.9% of people who drive cars have no idea what an internal combustion engine is, yeah. right? They don't understand how that actually drives uh, and connects to the wheels, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's some people who do understand that. So there's a sense of mystery there. But when it comes to God, I think that we need to 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 be uh, you know sort of respectful in the sense that He's not just a better version of us; He's fundamentally uh, different than us. He's yeah. wholly other than us, to use the words of the famous theologian Karl Barth. Um, but at the same time, He is simultaneously, because He is God, able to be like us, mm-hmm. and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and we're going to get into that the man aspect and relationship in a sec. Would it be Incorrect to say that, so we know that God is three distinct persons. beings, persons. persons is the term, um, but he's not, but he's not three separate persons. Correct. Yeah. And um, would it be right to say, so Jesus, when he's acting on earth, he's like, I do only what the father tells me to do. Praise to the father. He speaks of the Holy Spirit as a spirit. I'm going to leave. The Holy Spirit will come to you. Would it be right to say that he was not, he was a distinct person uh, but he was not unequal to God. He submitted himself to the will of the Father, he, the Father's authority. To way, the way you and I were both humans, or if you're, let's say you're my boss, you and I are both human beings. We're on the same level of, of um, the same species worth. Yeah, you can't say someone's life's worth more than the other ones. I right, mean, depends uh, <laughs> who you are. Um, but you're, as my boss, would have more authority over me. Is that the same kind of relationship? Yeah, with less of the authority because Jesus didn't say uh, God the Father didn't uh, didn't have authority over Christ, right? Jesus uh, submitted lovingly submitted himself to the experience of this world. Mm. So he, he gave his life. He, he says, set aside his divinity. That's correct. He willingly, s- he didn't just set aside. And I think that's a mistake term. He didn't set aside his divinity. He set aside his power of divinity. Mm, okay, that's slightly different. He didn't give up being divine. Well, that's a big distinction. It's a yeah, big distinction. That's a yes. great. That's a great distinction. He set aside his power of divinity. Correct. His his not authority, or he basically submitted himself to the will of. God the Father, or not the will, but the... He submitted, I think, uh, he says, I give my life, I lay down my life. Right, right. So in that regards, I would say it, in, to be properly Trinitarian, the Trinity in its in its totality decided that Jesus and the form of a man would give up his life 
as a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So again, we never want to think of the Father alone. We never want to think of Jesus alone. We never think of the Spirit alone. We always want to think completely Trinitarian. Yeah. And by the way, tr- Trinitarian thinking is hot is a hot topic in theology these days. Yeah. So Jesus becomes a man, and so let's talk about what is man. What did Jesus actually become? Did he he became like us? Um, he set aside the power of his divinity, but he kept his divinity. One of the th- points you made one time I thought was really good, um, and I'm going to butcher it now, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we kind of, when we think of Jesus and we're like, we're trying to be like Jesus, we have him on this upper level of, well, but he was God, and so I, I can't be Jesus. How can I do, you know? But that's a unattainable goal that is not really unattainable. I, I think none of us are perfect. We've already blown it. But this idea that Jesus was God-man Explain that to me a little bit more. So look, I, I think that we sometimes, and we fall into the trap of thinking of Jesus God, and right away we, we zoom towards him being divine in that regards, and we say, well, he's able to do all things because he was God. Right, right. Remember, we have, to, we have to remember that he is also, a, in a theological sense, he's 100% God, he's also 100% man. And as man, he suffers like we do. He experiences what we do. He is, as the book of Hebrews tells us, he is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, and in that regards, his temptations are legitimate. They're real. His when the, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, we have to accept that as real. Yeah. Uh, when Jesus, uh, I'm sure he laughed. I'm sure when he kneels down and he's been had a long, hard day and he rests at night, uh, he prays like we should. You know, the, the imitation of Christ is what we're called to, to follow him and to be like Christ. Uh, Paul admonished us, and there's a famous book from the 1400s, I think it is, about the imitating Christ. Th- this, this is really what we should do. It is not unattainable. It's very difficult, let's be blunt. Right. I mean, you know, we stumble along. But nonetheless, though, the aspect of Christ's humanity is sometimes underplayed in the, in the modern church because we want to put Jesus on a pedestal. Yeah. What we want to do is worship him and th- in the sense of worshipful thankfulness for what he has done for us. Um, a pedestal seems to me to carry the wrong imagery, imagery to, to me because God is not interested in us putting him up there. He's interested in being with us. Yes. Okay? God is for us. And so, you know, if we want to transition to what we are in relation to God. Yeah. Well, that's a great turn. And so I love that verse— I'm for you, not against you. Um, we often think that we, and this changes our view of repentance as well, because, all right, you sinned, come and get your lumps, and right. God's upset with you, and okay, you said your Hail Marys, or you beat yourself up and up in guilt, and you, <laughs> you apologize. Now God is slightly less annoyed with you. You better get your worship on. Um, it changes our view when we, when we start to realize that God is for us. So, who is man in relation to God and in the Trinity, and where would you start that conversation? Right. So we can. The, the beauty of what you just said there is that we can talk about God and the Trinity is one because they are one and the same. Mm-hmm. And and in that regards, then humanity is God's prized creation. If we look at the creation story, whether one thinks it's allegorical or whether one thinks it's literal, um, that's a non-factor. The key fact that remains absolutely true is that man 
is the high point of God's creation. Not in the sense that it was like, okay, everything else is kind of okay, but okay, look what I did. I created man. The point is, is that what we what we have around us, the, the world around us, uh, we are created for this world but God did it for us. Hmm. He did it with he did it for for us with the intention that he would be here with us. Um, and if you look towards the second coming of Christ and the apocalyptic end and then what how it f- unfolds in the future, it's the exact same thing. God being with mankind uh, once again. That was the intention all along. We just kind of have this blip in the in the history of eternity yeah. um, uh, that kind of says, okay, we got to go through this kind of period before we can recover again. Uh, but God is for us. And in that regards, then he has, he has created these wonderful things all around us. And we get glimpses of that. Mm-hmm. Even in our fallen state, to use a, a theological term, we do get glimpses of the wonder and the glory of what God had created. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's what it's all about. God for us. Our, one question I would have, I think it was worth explaining, is are we trying to get back to where we were in the garden, God's creation, or was this his plan, you know, for us to be redeemed by Christ, or was is it a is it an audible that God had to call? <laughs> um, great question. There are some who believe that the coming of Christ was necessary and part of God's plan all along because uh, as we come out of this, we are better for it. I think that's fundamentally flawed and a mistake. It's, Say that one more time because I, I want to make sure we're There clear are some that believe that, that, that without the coming of Christ, or the coming of Christ was a necessary and part of the plan of God in perfecting humanity. Okay. Um, and that this now, because as Christians having been perfected by Christ, we are now better off than, say, Adam and Eve were, to, mm-hmm. to use the, the, the two who were perfect in the Garden of Eden. I think that's quite flawed theologically. I don't see how that is uh, even uh, even a thought, but there are many who believe that. Um, what I believe is that I look back and say, what was God's purpose in the beginning? And I see it's the same purpose in the end. And therefore, I believe we will return. Now, will it unfold in the exact same manner? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. But I think it'll be pretty similar. I don't think God has changed his purpose for humanity. And I don't think he intended to um, for man to fall. I don't think he caused man to fall. I don't think that he, he, he thinks it's better because his son had to die on the, the son had to die on the cross, the second mm-hmm. person of the Trinity. And I don't think that all the suffering in the world was part of God's eternal plan. Yeah. I think that is a flawed uh, uh, thinking process. So what does it mean to, what, what is our relationship with God and what's God's plan for man? What was God's plan from the start and what is his eternal plan? Because the plans of God don't change. Yeah, so, God creates man, mm-hmm. we fall over and over again. Jesus redeems us. Jesus will return. We will be given new bodies, the mind of Christ, you know, a, a rebirth. Sure. Uh, born of the Spirit. Um, I don't even know how you would theologically swallow this, but what's God's plan, though, that we are with him and then we just sit on clouds? Well, that's a great question, and now we move into speculation, right? Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to be quite honest with you. I honestly don't know. Do I have thoughts? Yes. So let me give you something. If God's plan was to be with man all along and man be complete by his having a, a close fellowship with God, um, something we talked about in the past in terms of fellowship, 
then I think that that in itself is very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. God didn't create us to simply say, well, uh, I need you to sit on a cloud and strum a harp and tell me, praise God, praise God, praise God. I think that's a meaningless proposition and, and not how God operates. But God did create us with brains. God did create us with bodies. God did create us in the manner in which he did. Yeah. Um, and, gave, and, and gave man dominion over yes, the beasts. Over this world, over the, the whole world. world yeah. The whole world. In fact, um, I would argue that over thousands of years go by, Adam and Eve, if they had not sinned, there would be... There would be other people in this world, children. They would have children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we would have moved on to different planets. We would explore the galaxies and the universes. Mm. Um, there's Whoa, no, that's a crazy thought. There's no depth or breadth to what God could, would have done that's, with us. That's wild. I like that. Yeah. That's I, some real Chris Nolan stuff going <laughs> oh, on there. Is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I really no, do. good. I do really do think that um, if you look at how God has created us, um, he created us with the, th- the tools that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would just have done it in a sinless state. Yeah. So now we have we fall into a sinful state. We will exit the sinful state at some point in time, and God will be with us for all eternity, and we will get to do those wonderful things that he had intended for us from the beginning. Um, it'll, include, it'll include a close relationship and fellowship with God, no mm-hmm. doubt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, God is one in himself, Elohim, fully satisfied in himself, I would think. You know, he's God. Yes. Where did man come from? What's the point? Well, we'll have to ask him when he get there. Um, (laughs) But I do do think that somehow God in his, the same way in which we say God is gracious um, in his love towards man um, by coming to this world, sacrificing to recover mankind, he clearly wanted to have a relationship with us. Remember, if if you if you accept the fact that there are other angelic beings, if you believe that there are other spiritual beings out there, um, humanity is just one of many uh, other beings in the entire realm of the universe, our mm-hmm. uh, God's and, universe. And the idea of uh, of being falling is not foreign to just man. You know, you have the, the story of the, the angels that fell. That's correct. Right. right. So, yeah. So if you think about it, we, it's not just the man is unique in that regards. There are other beings that God has created. So we're just one of but the, we hold a special place in that. Mm-hmm. In God's creation, we do seem to hold something very important. Uh, and we realize that because uh, John three sixteen tells us, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." Yeah. Um, and in that regards, then that tells me how much He loved us. What What do you think it means when when God says, "I'm for you, not against you"? Well, I think that dispels that myth of uh, sinners in in, a, in the hand of an angry God. Yeah. Uh, the Jonathan Edwards thing. Um, I think it also implies that you know, as if I fall and stumble. Um, Let's be blunt. If I sin, um, I don't expect a lightning bolt to come down and destroy me at any point in time. Um, it means that God is looking to, in a way to reconcile me back to him. I think that the grace of God is always looking to pull man from the depths of where we are back up to him. Um He's that's what God is that's what God is for us means. He is looking for ways to to rekindle that relationship. He is doing it. Yes. Yep. He wants us uh, in right relationship. Um it's not us searching for it, hopefully stumbling across it. Right. You know, this isn't something I I, I would preach in a sermon, but we'll do it on a podcast. We'll have this discussion here. 
this I think a lot of people can read the Old Testament and they see this angry God, you know, and then the, the Bible is explicit about the anger, the wrath of God that's flared up by, um, you know, these acts. One of the things I was thinking about, and you can tell me if this is wrong or what, if you think it might be accurate, you know, when you see these these things happen and God says, I'm against you in the Old Testament, um, I think the context is important. If you flip the Bible open, you're like, and God smote the whatever, you know, the Israelites for, it's like, oh, he's, God's just really mad. And all they but this was a buildup of time of, of continuous acts. And we talked in the last podcast about these pastures that fall. It's not just a one-time, oops, you know, it's a, it's a buildup. But I was thinking about this is these, the Israelites had willingly entered into agreements, into a covenant with God. Sure. And I would lose my mind. I got, we had the pool put in and the contractor kept screwing me over. I about lost my mind. <laughs> I got yelled at. It's more stress and anxiety I've ever had in my life. And so I think about like, you know, imagine a covenant like um, um, that you make with God is broken. And I'm not, I don't even think it was God punishing them, but he's basically, they talk about in Roman, God gave them over to their desires. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would view, do you think that's an accurate view of, these these things that happen in the Old Testament that give people so much pause. You're dealing with a people that had made a covenant and have turned their back on the covenant, and they maybe more so in, instead of receiving the punishment of God, they lost the protection of God. Is that accurate? Sure, I, I would. I, so look, I agree with that um, that that description of the from the protection of God. I've stepped away from the protection of God. I think I hear this quite often: the the wrathful, angry God of the Old Testament. Um, I am troubled by that language for many reasons. The first of which is, if we look at God, um, there's no doubt there is some wrath, okay? There, we've seen some really difficult things. We've seen Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. We've seen uh, the, the Great Flood, um, if you, you know, take that literally as having happened. Um, and so we see other people, you know, having suffered, quote, unquote, the wrath of God. The issue here is, is that why is the wrath of God poured out? In that regards, in those handful of cases, and I literally believe handful of cases, it's because the sin of man is so egregious and antithetical to God's nature that it becomes problematic, and that's how he chooses to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Now, is that is God always wrathful? Absolutely not. Listen, there were other nations, other places, other uh, civilizations, the Greeks, the Persians, the Medes, the 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 Medo Persians, the Syrians, the Babylonians, the you know the Assyrians, uh, other great nations along the way prior to the coming of Christ in the quote unquote Old Testament times, um, and they weren't being destroyed; they were sacrificing children, hmm. they were uh, having wars with uh, uh, with other uh, other civilizations. The, the Egyptians, for example, were fighting with other kingdoms. Um, there weren't lightning bolts coming from the sky destroying places. There weren't just floods every single time uh, things happened that were incorrect. Right. I think it is somewhat instructive for us to realize that the accounts we hear in the Old Testament uh, really are unique to some things that God has chosen to use as a way to inform, educate, and hopefully show um, the the Hebrews 
that that God is serious about them. Yeah. God is intentional about them. God is for them, and that there are repercussions for some of their behaviors, some of their actions. Um, breaking so, the covenant. Yes, and bre- to, to go back to, I was going to bring it back to that that kind of breaking the covenant that they had established with God, and God has established with them. Um, and of course, God has to work in that way because you know that's the way the world operates. It was a brutal time in yeah. human history. It wasn't, they, everybody wasn't nice except the Hebrews and God uh, just thrashing right, people around. Right. God works through the natural means mm-hmm. of, of, of what's available. So it's not surprising to my, in my sense, I, I, I don't really think of God as overly wrathful in the Old Testament. I think that that is, in, the wrath of God in the Old Testament is indicative of how God uh, feels about sin. And it's always yeah. in against sin. And I think the context of the time is, is is so important to remember. Uh, you know, we modernize everything. You read this stuff in the Old Testament, you're like, why would they do that? I mean, this is not what we do now. I think of it the same way. I look at my father, and we raise our children completely different ways. I mean, my dad was involved, but not really. You know what I mean? Like, right. I am changing diapers. I'm doing everything, you know? And it's, yep. But I don't hold it against my old man because... Is like used to be like your father comes home from work, everybody get out of the way. There's right. a comedian I like Tom Papa has a bit on it. He's like, your, my mother like would come home or be like, your father's coming home. Everyone get out of the way. He loves you. He just doesn't want to see you. He's <laughs> like, this is. But I'm like changing diapers, doing all this stuff. So it, you're dealing with the context of a time. It doesn't. Maybe it, we've had to come a long way as fathers, but it doesn't excuse it. So you're dealing with an ancient, ancient civilization. And to your point. This wasn't just, oh, you guys, I told you only eat fish on Friday, and now I'm going to wipe you guys out. Right. These were egregious child-sacrificing acts. Um, and I find it odd that a lot of people that will flip the Bible open and point to an angry, wrathful God will also point and say, well, where's God with the, the destruction in the world, and where's why could people like Joseph Coney exist? And all this stuff? Well, you're mad at him when he's in, enacting justice in the Old Testament. You're mad at him for not enacting justice right. now. It's a... Um, I think it's a self-defeating argument in that sense. It, it is. It's an illogical argument, yep. and and I I think that uh, once you scratch the surface of the argument, it almost collapses on itself actually because it doesn't actually have any weight. It just simply is a way for someone to point out, um, point a finger at somebody and say, "See, I told you so." Mm-hmm. Kind of a mentality. So yeah, I don't take it. You know, and it's funny when I get into arguments with people about this and I push back on them, uh, they themselves have no uh, response. Uh, so yeah, it happens. Yeah. yeah, it's the bullet point arguments of right. you know. So we're looking at God's not angry, God's not rather. But so uh, what happened on the cross exactly? You know, we often sing the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. What did Jesus do? He who was without sin became sin to atone for our sins. Can you explain the what was the effectiveness of, of Christ on the cross and in the resurrection? Okay, so so let's take a look at what we talked about. Let's let's bring forward the concept of the wrath of God, in the, as we saw it in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, handed meted out a few times, and we talk about the wrath of God of, of against Christ on the cross, Jesus on the cross. What if we if we a nice translation? If we say that the wrath of God was poured out against sin in the Old Testament, egregious sin, then we when we look at what Christ was suffering, he was suffering on the cross for all the sin of all humanity for all times. Mm. Present, past, present, future. Past, present, future. And in that regards, then, we do see that the nature of God is antithetical to sin, 
because it, it is offensive to the nature of God. And so therefore, it's not surprising that the full wrath of God was poured out against all sin at all times, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, it's, a, it's a culmination of all things, of all the sins uh, and God's full wrath against that. Nonetheless, Christ's perfection allows him to be the perfect sacrifice that satiates and reconciles man who's responsible for the sin back to God again. That was God's plan. That's how he chose to do it. Now, the question becomes then, yeah, but why did he have to die? Why does he have to die as a crucifixion? Look, I think, you know, one can theorize about a multiplicity of things without knowing without great detail, but I would, I would let me offer up a couple things. One, if we think of the time in which Jesus came, and we remember Galatians 4 and 4, when the fullness of time had come, right. God sent forth his son born of a woman, we also realize at that point that it was an important point in human history where the person of Jesus' death could actually make an impact. Hmm. Right? Had he come in some small corner of the world and died right there, no one would have known about it. It would have been the end of it. Had he come for the Babylonian Empire, ah, no one would remember it. But he came during the time of the Roman Empire, the known world, so to speak. And therefore, the message could be transmitted very nicely at that point in time. I think it also is important to understand that the term sacrifice has much more meaning in that window of human history than it does nowadays. As I like to speak about it, you know, a lot of people think, uh, you know, that that chicken really is comes wrapped in plastic and uh, a foam, <laughs> a, a white piece of foam underneath it, right? right? With no bones in it, right? But there is the concept of sacrifice, death, and the shedding of blood, that life aspect, because the life is blood, that something is meaningful, substantively meaningful, than just some sort of symbolic act. So I think in Christ's death, we see a meaningful act. In Christ's death, we see the full wrath of God in and in human history, we see a meaningful point in time for Christ's sacrifice to be meaningful. It is now instantiated. It's a point in time where writing, for example, is available. It's a point in time where people now start keeping historical records. It's a point in time mm-hmm. where where there is now uh, there is like commerce and traffic and roads being built from the east to the west to the known world. I think we we reach the point of inflection in human history when Christ's death could happen yeah. and be meaningful. So mm-hmm. that's kind of how I wrap up Christ's death on the cross um, in, in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when we started this episode, we're like, yeah, if, you know, if it's 15 minutes, it'll be fine. <laughs> like, let's talk about the Trinity in 15 minutes. Sure, like, why be, not, yeah. Um, especially between the two of us. So I think it's so important to, to remember that, you know, that this the ultimate sacrifice was God himself who took the sacrifice. It wasn't, and then I wiped out the entire world and we all started over in heaven, you know? Right. And so this this idea of the angry God, it's you can't continue with that when you look at who got the, the wrath of God? God. Yes. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And that's why um, the Car- Karl Barth, the great theologian uh, of the 20th century, um, is Im- important and puts Christ at center, at center stage. And to know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know God because he experienced what we experienced and the full wrath of God uh, because he loved us. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that old lovely verse, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mm-hmm. It's just that simple yeah. uh, because he loves us. And so 
how would you say that God sees us? If you were going to explain, how does God see Lindley? How does God see Jonathan when they look at us, when he looks at us? I think this is a really good question, and I don't want to make it overly simplistic, but I think that God loves us. He's interested in us. He cares for us. Um, his actions have always been towards mankind. How can I reconcile them? They've fumbled the ball. How can I get them? How can I get them back? Mm. Um, it's going to be difficult. It's an arduous task. We're going to have this point in history where I'm finally going to be able to make it happen. Um, I hate waiting, but I I can't wait to have them back in my arms again and um, and 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 have that relationship with them. Um, and when you're in a relationship with God, even now we have that glimpse of it, how wonderful it is, how ecstatic it is, how powerful it is, how rich it is. Um, and it's so comforting. It feels like we are complete when God is with us. Yeah. This, this, I, and I hope anyone listening, the idea of the, the angry God would start to fade away and to realize that, you know, God himself took, took the wrath that belonged to us, took the death that belonged to us, and I think if we can change the way we see God, and that's why I want to talk about the Trinity, and the way he sees us, it'll change the way we can see ourselves as well. And um, I don't know if anyone's listening, and you're just beating yourself up too much, and you think God's mad at you, think you can't find the self-worth in yourself, to know that the God of the universe, not only were you not a mistake, you were part of the plan from the beginning. Amen. I mean, it makes me feel so loved and so adored. And I just would encourage anybody, if you got questions, reach out. We'd love to talk um, and, and to explore this this great and loving God. Um, I think this is awesome, Lindley. Thanks for, for being on the show again. And um, I hope you guys feel loved. Do you have anything else you no, think would be great? Thanks for to... having me on the show, Jonathan. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to be a friend of the show. Yes, you are a friend of the show. I, I like to explore this stuff. And, you know, I, we, like, we have some points we want to hit, but a lot of this is just discussing it and Lindley will tell you himself he doesn't consider himself an apologetic apologetics type person like give me your hardest questions and we're gonna you know like knock them out of the park and i'll you can send it to your atheist friends after this share this <laughs> video online but it, you're someone who wrestles with these things you study the philosophy you study the history and the context and you're working these things out within yourself yep, um absolutely and so i just i really appreciate you being on here and, and, and sharing this conversation great thank you thank you for having me